Amen. Good morning, church. Thank you, worship team. Kids, you're dismissed up through fifth grade to head on down to your classrooms this morning. For the rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We will be in verses 11 through 14 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. As you are turning or tapping there, I just want to say I've had an amazing weekend so far. If I look a little bit more tired than I normally do on a Sunday morning, it's because I've been hanging out with our students all weekend uh, at the winter retreat, which has been a lot of fun um, and uh, and just really appreciated that time. Haven't gotten to spend a, a ton of time like that with our students and just really appreciated getting to know them. We've got a great group of kids and uh, we've certainly having a lot of fun, but also been diving into the book of First Peter. So I taught on Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, what it means to be strangers in a strange land. And so uh, be praying for them. I think they are like literally packing up to head home right now. Um, so just be praying for them as they come home that they would uh, put into practice the things that uh, we talked about this weekend. Also would appreciate your prayers uh, for this week. I'm heading to a conference uh, with an organization called Global Serve International. It's a pastor's conference uh, to learn how to send and support missionaries well as a church. So that's where I will be uh, this upcoming week. So just appreciate your prayers that that's a fruitful time for me and able to connect with other pastors as well and that we would grow in that area as a church as a result of that. And speaking of uh, missions and uh, sending missionaries. I just want to give one uh, final plug here for our mission trips that are coming up. Uh, we have one this summer with the students and then our Guatemala trip. So we, uh, I, we're just like full disclosure, we're in a little bit of danger of having to cancel our uh, student trip and that's because we've had one kid sign up so far. Now Certainly students are uh, historically last minute, as are their parents, is what I'm learning as being a part of this church, but we're certain, so maybe there's students that are just uh, going to sign up, but I just want to really encourage you, if you're a parent of a teenager, I've never been a parent of a teenager, I've been a teenager, but never yet been a parent of a teenager, but uh, you can make your kid go on this trip, <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> and I kind of think you should, and uh, I'm not really joking, um, I think I just look back on mission trips that I went on when I was in high school and the formative impact that they had on my life. And I also think I know it's just never convenient to take a week in the summer. And I know our students, even more than when I was a kid, have stuff going on. But uh, it's okay to teach them that following Jesus isn't always convenient and that you can do hard things uh, as a student. And so... Uh, so maybe this, when they, on, when they get back from a treat, you can tell them, hey, I signed you up for the mission trip this summer. And uh, if they really have a problem with you about that, just send them my way and I'll, I'll talk to them. But I want to encourage that in you. And then uh, for the Guatemala trip as well, same thing, honestly. Uh, I know it is uh, never convenient to take a week off of work to go uh, uh, to another country and um, raise the money and do all the trainings and all that thing, it, all those things. It's not convenient, but uh, it's worth it. And so if it's possible, if you feel like the Lord has maybe been nudging you, and I just, I know there's, there's certainly legitimate excuses, but 
uh, at the same time. If there's a way that you can make it work, I just want to encourage you to do that. So you got this week to fill out your application. I'm happy to answer any questions that you have about it, but I uh, just want to encourage you that as well. I will be there. I don't know if I would use that as, as necessarily the sales pitch like Sam was saying, but I would be excited to hang out with you and get to know you more on that trip. Um, but really, um, everyone who's been on that trip uh, can testify to what the Lord did in their heart as a result. And so I uh, just want to encourage you. So, uh, so students, make sure your students, then they're not here, so I can say it really you know, plainly. They don't have a choice. Tell them that they're going on the trip. But then for you as well, if you would pray and ask if the Lord would have you be a part of the Guatemala trip. Okay. Uh, that's my plug this morning. Uh, hopefully you've made it to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14, and then we'll pray. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And that concludes Paul's magnificent sentence in verses 3 to 14. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray that as we go to your word this morning, having sung of the gospel, having heard the gospel read uh, in our call to worship, and now um, as I have the opportunity to preach the gospel, make us gospel people this morning, God. Make us people who are... Um, who are constantly and continually growing in our understanding of all that you have done in Christ and all of the implications that has for us in our lives. So we pray as we talk about our inheritance this morning. We pray that as we talk about the Spirit, um, we, uh, we just pray that you would apply these things to our hearts. And I pray, God, if there's anyone in this room who does not yet know you, who is not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that they would make the greatest and most important decision that they could ever make, that they are going to deny themselves and pick up their crosses and follow you. Make that happen today, God, we pray. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the third week of our little mini-series that I've been calling God Blessed You as we've been looking at verses 3 to 14, which I've shared a couple times now, are one sentence in the Greek. There's no punctuation or anything. There's, it's just one long sentence. Paul is overflowing with praise to God as he recounts everything that we have in Jesus. Excuse me. Just get ahead of this right away. Get a little drink. Now we'll just be good for the rest of the time. All right. That's called the junk that sits in your throat after spending a weekend with uh, 20 high schoolers is what that is. So we've been talking about everything that God for, has done for us in Christ through the Spirit. And as we've been going through these verses, we've been saying, especially last week, that we need to fight to make sure that this is our identity 
that this is primarily how we see ourselves. And I've been make, joking a little bit in the past couple weeks that this can be your fun fact if you're playing a get-to-know-you game. Your fun fact is I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. I was adopted into God's family. I was redeemed by the blood of Christ. My sins have been forgiven. I've been given insight into God's plan to unite everything in the universe in Christ. And what's a more fun fact than that, right? It's way more fun than like I can touch my nose with my tongue or, or whatever. Um, but we said that this doesn't come naturally. And I've been really hammering this idea of identity. How do I see myself? How do I think of myself? How do I picture my place in this world? We've been hammering that idea of identity precisely because it is so countercultural. It does not come naturally to think of yourself and your life through the lens of the gospel. So as we were at, like I said, we were talking about what does it mean this weekend to be strangers in a strange land? And our, my first talk with the students uh, this weekend on Friday night was just called, Why Are You So Weird? And uh, there's a lot of reasons we could talk about uh, why uh, we are so weird, but um, as followers of Jesus, by definition, you are going to be weird. You are going to be weird. I see some uh, nodding over here uh, by Amy, and uh, she's probably nodding because she knows that her husband is indeed very weird. But we're going to be weird as followers of Jesus. Um, how we identify ourselves is going to be different than the way that people who don't follow Jesus identify themselves by. And that's not a message that's just for the youth. That's for all of us. I was reading an article this week by a guy named David Brooks, and he was talking about, it's not a, I don't know if he's a believer or not, it wasn't a Christian article, but he was just talking, generally speaking, about the unhealthy ways that people identify themselves nowadays, specifically what we see in America in 2024, really the last probably 10 years at least, but primarily, whereas back many years ago, people would identify themselves based on uh, their um, the positive connections that they have with other people, nowadays we're seeing a shift in our society where people are generally, first and foremost, thinking of themselves in terms of the things that they oppose, the things that they are against. This is what he said. I'm going to read the quote, and then I'm going to try to explain what I think he meant. He said, today, you define your identity by how you stand against what you perceive to be the dominant structures of society. Groups on each side of the political divide are held together less by common affections than by a common sense of threat and experience of collective oppression. Today's communal culture is based on a shared belief that society is broken, systems are rotten, the game is rigged, injustice prevails, the venal elites are out to get us. We find solidarity and meaning in resisting their oppression together. What he's saying is what I said earlier, that people in America generally identify themselves not by what they're for, but by what they are against. And so the way that you find like community and solidarity and agreement with other people is are you angry about or afraid of the same things that I am? 
Are you angry about the MAGA right or the woke left? Are you afraid of immigration ruining our country or are you afraid of climate change ruining our planet? Are you more upset about a Donald Trump presidency or a Joe Biden presidency? I'm not saying this to minimize any of these issues, but I'm just saying like this is, and you can feel this, can you not? Like this is how we organize and, and uh, commune with one another in America in 2024, we find people who are angry or upset about the same things that we are, and then we listen to people who stoke our anger and tell us why we're right to be afraid, and that the people on the other side are going to bring about the end of the world as we know it if we don't take drastic action. And I know you feel this, and I just have to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's a terrible way to live. Amen? If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's a terrible way to live. But certainly, as a follower of Jesus, if, you're, if that's your Monday to Saturday, is that anger and fear and just, just people pouring into me with all sorts of stuff of what I should be mad at and what I should be afraid of. And if that's your Monday to Saturday, Sunday is not going to make a lot of sense to you. Because it's like we're in a different planet here. Because we kind of are. If your Monday through Saturday is stoking anger at your perceived enemies, then Sunday morning, when we preach and sing about the sovereign God, sovereign means in control, the sovereign God who's blessed us and calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to the extent that we might have enemies, we're actually called to bless them and pray for them. And that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, black nor white, conservative nor progressive, but we're all one in Christ Jesus and we're called to a radical unity with one another where we lay aside our differences and even our rights so that we wouldn't be a stumbling block to anyone coming to Jesus. Sunday morning's not going to compute with you if your Monday through Saturday is filled with the world. It's not going to make sense. And then what's going to happen, because six days is more than one, so what's going to happen actually is the gospel is going to start to lose its appeal, and you're going to start losing uh, the, the desire to read God's word throughout the week because it doesn't talk about the things that you really care about. You see that? You're going to find yourself less consistent in your church attendance because these people here aren't really uh, your people unless they also share your political concerns. Church, God's plan, as revealed in the book of Ephesians, is to bring everyone under the head of Christ. And what follows from that is a radical unity that we're called to as Christians. And I just see this threat, especially in churches that are a lot like ours. There is a threat looming that we are going to be torn apart by things that have nothing to do with the gospel. And that we're just not going to have any of that if there's anything I can do about that. And really, it's the spirit that's going to unite us together. But we got to call it out for what it is, which is not healthy. It's not good for your soul. 
And certainly we all fall into that trap in one way or another. And we need to be careful. Because following Jesus means I have a complete change of identity. It means that I see myself primarily as someone who's called to bless God with my life because that's what he's done for me. It means we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, you know the hymn, and the things of earth, meaning the things that the world tells us should divide us, the things that the world tells us we should be afraid of, the things that the world tells us we should orient our lives around. What happens to the things of earth? They grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, How can you bring your Monday through Saturday more in line with your Sunday? And honestly, when we're talking about like political things, that's just one of many traps that the enemy sets. Maybe you're kind of like, I can't really actually relate to what you're saying, Pastor Mike. I'm like the least political person ever. That's fine. But what is it in your life that... As you fix your eyes on Jesus, that thing needs to grow strangely dim. Is there something that is a flaming hot fire in your life where your relationship with Jesus is just a simmering coal at best? That's what we're going to talk about with the rest of our time this morning. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And these verses give us the animating purpose for our lives. These verses are going to tell us what, what motivates us when we wake up in the morning, when our head comes off of that pillow. What is the thing that drives me to live my life? And we see it right here in verses 11 and 12. It says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. These verses tell us uh, the reason we were saved. But we have to dig a little bit to find it, admittedly. There's a lot of, I made up this term, it's called bounce words, which is, I made it up, it just means that uh, you ever have this where you're doing your quiet time and you're reading a passage of scripture and there's like these words, your eyes just like bounce over the words. Like you can't even like, you have to slow down so much because um, it, it's like, what is this even saying? And this verse is full of, full of that. So we have to really slow down. It says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is admittedly hard to understand what that means. Was it... Uh, who was it? Was it Peter or Timothy who said sometimes, no, I mean, it was Peter who said sometimes uh, Paul's hard to understand? And we just say a hearty amen to Peter in that one. It's a little hard to understand. We need to go back to English class a little bit. It's always a good thing to do when you're studying the word um, and understand, okay, what is the main subject? So verse 11, somebody call out, what's the main subject in verse 11? We, very good. And uh, what is the verb? 
have obtained. I'm not really hearing you guys saying, so I'm just assuming that you guys are getting it right. We have obtained, and what have we obtained? An inheritance. Okay, so this is like, this is what Paul's saying. We have obtained, received, an inheritance. And then he goes on to explain how we received that inheritance. So we've gotten an inheritance in Christ. How? Having been predestined. Okay, so meaning at some point it was decided before the beginning of time that you would receive an inheritance. Having been predestined. And then according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, a couple weeks ago, we saw the same phrase, according to his purpose. And what we said was basically that means because he wanted to. Okay? So now we've been predestined. Why? Because he wanted to. Who's the he? I recognize I'm probably going to lose almost all of you by the end of this, but we're going to get this together. So he wanted to. Who's the he? The one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God. What does that mean, he works all things according to the counsel of his will? It means the decisions he makes are based on the counsel that he gets within himself. What is Paul saying? You've received an inheritance because the one who wanted to, the one who operates by doing the things he wants to, wanted to. You with me? Clear as mud? God wanted to give you an inheritance, and so he did. That is how you got an inheritance, is the will of God. And that's what we're going to go on in the book of Ephesians to talk about. It is not your works. It's nothing you've done. Uh, no reason to boast. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith through faith. There we go. God wanted to give you an, an inheritance, and so he did. Now, what is the purpose of the inheritance. We have the what and we have the how. What is the inheritance? How from God? Why? Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We were given an inheritance by God to glorify God. So I don't have a PowerPoint this week, but if I did, you could pretend it said you were saved by God to glorify God. If you're taking notes, that's a good thing to write down. You were saved by God to glorify God. This is now the animating purpose of your life. This is what drives you from the moment you wake up from, to the moment you go to sleep. It is the glory of of God. The God who chose you before the foundation of the world to receive his inheritance has done so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, what's that mean, we who were the first to hope in Christ? I can't get in. I just took you through that whole grammar thing before. I can't get it. There's like there's two main ideas. There's like four subsets underneath each of the ideas. The main thinking that people have, it's, it's either referring to Israel or it's referring to just literally the people who heard the gospel first. 
It doesn't really matter. If you want to get into the, if you want to send me an email and I'll get into the nitty gritty with you, I'll, I'll actually love that. But uh, I'm happy to talk about it with you more. The point is, it refers to all of us now that we who hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God's glory must be the umbrella principle under which everything else under your life, in your life falls. Example, I am working to provide for my family. That is a bad animating principle for your life. I am working for God to be glorified is a good animating principle for your life. Part of the way that you glorify God, providing for your family. But you see how you need to get those things in the right order? And you see if you actually, if you have those things in the wrong order, how you can get just completely off? If you're just working to provide for your family, like where does that end and how does that affect how you think about helping other people? How do, you know, there's just so many ways we can get off. But if we say, I'm working to glorify God, and then how do I glorify God? Well, by providing for my family, by uh, providing for the needy, for doing different things that God calls us to do. But the umbrella principle must be, I am working for God's glory. Another example I think that's like really relevant in our church is schooling choices, right? Not to like open a, what's the hornet's nest or whatever, but like we have different people make different choices in our church. They're public school kids, private school kids, homeschool kids, and uh, we can relate. Like it can be a hard decision of what to do. And uh, how do you make that decision? And the animating principle, the, the bedrock principle must be more than where can I, my kid get the best education or be in the best environment or have the best teacher or like uh, not interact with things in the world that they're not ready to experience yet. Like those things are important to think about, but the number one thing you must think is how can our family most glorify God in this decision? And you pray and you do your best. And as I was talking with the students about uh, this, this weekend, like uh, when you're a kid, a junior and senior in high school, you feel probably more pressure than at any other point in your life because everyone all the time, you've grown-ups who don't know what else to ask you, they say, well, where are you going to college next year? What are you going to be doing? And they get so sick of hearing that question. But also, it's just kind of like this pressure. And you feel this pressure of, I don't want to make the wrong decision. I don't want to upset God. If God really has a plan for my life and I go to the wrong place, it's going to derail everything. I mean, we can think about that. It's not just students for anything that you do, right? We can feel that pressure of if I don't make the exact right decision, then that's going to mess up God's whole plan for my life. No, it's not, church. <laughs> You're not going to mess up God's plan for your life. You pray and you ask the Lord for guidance and direction, but ultimately what you're praying is, God, help me to glorify you in this. <laughs> God, I feel you leading me this way. Help me glorify you in this and help me be willing to make a change if I need to make a change. But I, I, wherever I go, it's the same First 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So whatever life stage you're at, should I stay in this relationship? Is it bringing glory to God? Should I put my kid in this travel sports league? Is it going to help our family glorify God? 
Should I take this promotion? Should we do foster care? Should I join the church softball team this year? I don't care. Big or small, how can I cut my toenails to the glory of God, right? Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but I'm sure there's a way you could figure that out. Whatever it is, how can I bring glory to God? And you know what? It's important in our suffering, too. Oh, man, I was just, Sam was talking about Brenda Alexander. She's in a, a bad spot right now. And we need to be praying for her. She's had a lot of suffering, and now she has more diagnoses that are uh, looming on the horizon. And uh, I got to spend some really good time with her down in the hospital this week. And I asked her, I said, how are you processing this spiritually? And um, I wouldn't have blamed her at all if she said, I'm a little frustrated with God. I don't understand why I keep having one catastrophe after another after another. But she didn't say that. She said that on her way to the hospital this most recent time, the song came on the radio, Goodness of God. She said that lyric, from the moment I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. And she said, that's just what I'm trying to do every day. That's powerful. You can glorify God even in your suffering. Sometimes your suffering is the best chance you'll have in your whole life, actually, to glorify God. That's how you see outside of the snow globe of your circumstances, and that's how we're called to live. You were saved by God to glorify God. It's the first thing we see in this passage. And then here's the second. Paul just ends with this amazing promise. The second thing we see, again, imagine this is on the PowerPoint. You were sealed by the Spirit to guarantee the promise. You were sealed by the Spirit to guarantee the promise. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul, as you've noticed, he just goes from we who were the first to hope in Christ, which again, maybe he's referring to uh, the first Jewish believers before the gospel went to the Gentiles. Maybe he's just talking specifically about like literally just the first believers, but he turns it from we to you. He says, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, again, he's loading it up with all these phrases before we get to the main verb, which is, were sealed. So you were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit. So you were sealed by the Spirit. What does sealed mean? Uh, it's different. We're not talking about like putting your leftovers in the Tupperware putting them in the fridge. It's not that kind of seal. It's uh, a seal is like a mark. It's putting your mark on something. I have in my office this little, uh, somebody gave me as a graduation present, this little thing, and you 
put a page of a book in and push the thing down, and then it says, uh, from the library of Mike Nafziger, and that's very handy for me because I loan out a ton of books and completely forget who I loan them out to. So at least they know who it belongs to if they ever come across it again. That's my, that's my seal. That's, that shows that that book belongs to me. And in the ancient world, this was a practice all the time. People had a seal, and then like if they would send their possessions on a ship or something uh, to another destination, like their seal would show that those things belonged to them. And so you, this is cool, you have been given God's seal. What do you think that shows? That you belong to him. And what is that seal? It is the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. I heard, I think it was Mark Dever who I heard talking about this one time. He, he said that uh, the Spirit for us kind of functions like an engagement ring. An engagement ring. So what's an engagement ring? Well, you're dating someone and then uh, decide to get married. It shows that you are going to get married. So it changes your status from single to engaged. Is engaged your final status? No, what is? Married, right? So being engaged is better than being single if you have found the right person that you are going to get married to. But it's not as good as being married. So you see what we're saying is the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a promise to show that the inheritance... The wedding feast, if you will, is coming. It, it guarantees it. We're not there yet. And this is what, again, in the language of Paul, you see it's straining at even the, the ability for our human language to communicate these things. He says, we've obtained an inheritance, and also the Spirit guarantees that we will obtain an inheritance. So we're in this in-between time right now, what, Paul call, what uh, theologians call the already and the not yet. We have already received the fullness of the Spirit, and yet one day that Spirit shows us that we will obtain the promise. Now, when do you receive the Spirit? What does Paul say? He says you receive the Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. You received the Spirit when you heard the gospel and believed. There's some people that teach different things, that it's after you're baptized or after you speak in tongues or any number of things, but I just think it's so clear right here in Ephesians 1, understanding that there's other arguments, but I think it's just so clear. When you heard and believed... You received the promised Holy Spirit. So I don't know if there's anyone in here this morning who does not yet believe. But I want to share with you the gospel so you can at least for sure know that you've heard it. You need to know this. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And he created man and woman in his image. And it was very good. 
And then because of mankind's disobedience, sin entered the world. And because God is holy, he could no longer be in relationship with sinful humanity. There's something that was separating God from man. So what God did is he sent his son into the world to pay the price for our sin. And that price is death. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty that you rightly and justly owed because of your sin. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, literally came out of the grave. And when he did that, he guaranteed that death was now defeated. John 3.16, a passage you may be familiar with, tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel. If you agree that your sin has rightly and justly separated you from a holy God, that nothing on your own effort can fix that, that you need somebody else to stand in your place to take that punishment or you will justly receive it. If you understand that you deserve eternal punishment because of your sin, and you believe that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin, you will be saved. That's the gospel. And you've heard it. And the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? And I can't do that for you. No one here can. I can share the gospel with you. Anyone here can share the gospel with you. It doesn't take a pastor to share the gospel. But only you can know in your heart if you believe. So let me urge you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, make today the day of your salvation. You've heard the gospel. Now believe. If you want to talk to me after the service, I'd love to talk to you. If you want to talk to anyone in here who's a follower of Jesus, they would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. You need to know that the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit, who is that engagement ring that promises that the wedding feast is coming. Now, my believing brothers and sisters... I want to say, like, there's probably some in here who might be thinking, like, I believe, but I also feel this disconnect between me and God, and you're telling me I have the Spirit, but I don't always feel like I have the Spirit. Let me just say, everyone goes through desert times in their faith, certainly. Sometimes there's no reason for it. Sometimes you just feel dry. I have pleaded with the Lord many times in my life, God, why do I just feel like I'm in a desert right now? Why am I not feeling the joy of my salvation? Sometimes there's no reason for it. But sometimes, I just humbly ask and just say, like, are you walking through a desert time because you've made the wrong thing, the primary thing in your life? 
Because more often than not, for me, when I am going through a dry season in my faith, it's because I'm making something that should be secondary the primary thing. What's it called when you make something that isn't supposed to be the primary thing the primary thing in your life, and you worship that thing as though it is the primary thing in your life? That's an idol. Oh, and we all do that in so many ways. It's like we talked about at the very beginning. Maybe it's because you're identifying yourself more by what you're against than who you are in Christ. Or maybe you're just living for some lesser purpose other than the glory of God. And I just found that like, when I'm doing that in my life, my desire to read God's word decreases. My desire to gather with my church family goes down. My desire to grow in my faith, to have spiritual conversations with people around me, like it wanes because it's not the most important thing anymore. And so as we close, I just want to ask you as a follower of Jesus, like what things in your life need to grow strangely dim? As you fix your eyes on Jesus, what are those things that you have taken that are secondary and you elevated them to primary status? I want you to think about that. So as we close here, is what we do sometimes at Rock Prayer. I'm going to give you just a little bit of time to reflect before the Lord. I just want you to pray. Just say, God, reveal in my heart what is secondary that I'm making primary and how can I live for your glory in whatever circumstances the Lord has placed you in. God, help me to live more for your glory. So take a few minutes now and pray. And then I'll know just a couple of minutes, I'll come up and I'll close this in prayer. Father, we uh, humbly come before you and ask that you would help us be the praise of your glory. May our lives be a testament and a testimony to what you've done for us in Christ. God, we confess uh, there are things that we place ahead of you, ahead of your glory in our lives. We all have idols of our hearts. So forgive us, God, Thank you. Uh, we don't have to go far in Ephesians to learn about the wealth of your grace that you lavish on us in Christ Jesus. So God, may we not be a people that are known more for what uh, we are standing against than who we're standing for. May we be a people who are, are willing and eager to lay aside every weight and sin that clings and everything we can just get so easily entangled with. And may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do that, God, may we find the things of the world growing strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name.